モーニングプロジェクトプレゼンツ And ladies and gentlemen, another 30 days has flown by and we all know what that means. It's time for another episode of GVGP, the generic video game podcast coming at you live via tape delay from our studio apartments. You're once again joined by the voice of myself, Anthony, alongside the nation's most renowned socialite, Shidoshi. <laughs> Now I can't, I gotta laugh because、uh, I was originally Osaka in LA's socialite, and I now, even through my screw up, have gotten upgraded to the, the was it Nations? Yeah, the,、uh, yeah. Top socialite? Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm so depressed right now. And Anthony's going to tell you why. But While we're coming up on 55 seconds in record time right now, we've actually lost about 55 minutes.、Um, so it was just a very honest mistake. And,、um, honest mistake、uh, being that I did not hit record. <laughs> and、so、the thing is, with, with the podcast that I do, we always record our own audio. So, that when I put it together in podcast form, you get the best quality for every person that we can get.、Um, and unfortunately, while Anthony did what he's supposed to do and hit record on his side, I did not hit record on my side. Even though I thought. Now, I while, while this is a very big fumble and a terrible mistake,、uh, one that's near unforgiving, <laughs> I will say it's not as bad as the current state of Konami and their mistakes.、Oh. So,、uh, you. All is forgiven here、oh. in GVGP Morning Project Land. Well, and the, and the truth is,、um, if you've never had a podcast where you ended up like, not recording it or having to throw the audio away or whatever, then you're not doing podcasts because that is something、right. that happens to every single、yes. podcast that's out there. Yes. And it sucks, but yeah, so we're going to have kind of a shorter show tonight because、um, we're not going to. The thing is, like, on, on warning, we will, we will literally just go back and re record the entire segment again, <laughs>、uh, part of the reason why sometimes we, we do it for like eight hours at a time. But we're not going to do that. So I think what we decided was that the topics that we talked about and are now lost,、um, we might get to on the next show, perhaps. Just as,、uh, you know, what may be lost forever、uh, in the annals of、uh, the gaming universe, we did touch base on、uh, the. Updated state of Konami.、Uh, we talked about Image Epoch,、yeah. amongst some other things. With that being said, we're just kind of throwing that out there to kind of give some feelers to the audience as to what they're unfortunately missing out on. But in case they don't hear those certain topics or they're like, hey, how could that not have been touched base on、uh, right now is, you know, due to their relevancy?、Uh, it's just we're going to move on from there at this point、uh, for the sake of tonight's recording. We're still going to try to get in about 60 to 75 minutes in there. And、uh, as punishment uh, to uh -oh. Shidoshi and everyone listening, now everybody's going to have to hear me read the news. <laughs> so、uh, I got some more Wall Street Journal stuff. And as we know in the past, I usually save that for towards the end of the show. I don't have as much from、uh, the w s j Now、WSJ. we are near the end of the show, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So I was reading a bit of this earlier.、Uh, I got a chuckle or two out of it.、Uh, I don't know if you will. Might be a bit dry, but、uh, let's run with it. If it's terrible. Uh, I'll have Shidoshi stop me and I will stop in my tracks.、Uh, this article, it's maybe a couple weeks old, and it says Is it a game or is it real? 
thanks to virtual reality, says Jane McGonagall, and I'm sure I butchered that name, the line will be a blurry one. Do you want an escape from everyday life or a way to change your life? In the coming decades, gaming technology will make both choices possible in 3D virtual reality to a degree unheard of today. Anyone wishing to explore imaginary worlds 20 years from now will find the journey much more convincing and immersive than it is now. Indeed, for those born after 2015, full immersion in virtual worlds will be as frequent and matter-of-fact as checking Facebook is today. Presence will replace social as the thing 20-somethings expect from all technological experiences. Such activities may come to be considered not escapist, but as authentic as everyday life. Older generations will continue to debate whether virtual reality gaming is empowering and socially connecting or dangerously addictive and isolating. But lines between play and reality will continue to blur as virtual reality and other types of digital games increasingly are designed to deliver real-world benefits, often in ways that are socially and economically disruptive. Consider these four types of potentially life-changing games, which I predict will become extremely popular during the next decade. Now, this is where I kind of started to chuckle a bit, not saying that it's wrong, but uh, maybe some angles and perspectives that I hadn't originally thought of. The first one here, games that hack your taste buds. Okay. If a game can change what you eat, it can help you make healthier food choices. Picture this. You're eating tofu while immersed in a VR simulation in which you're eating a thick, juicy steak. It tricks your brain into feeling like your carnivorous cravings are satisfied. Hmm. I, I know. I, I think it's kind of a stretch, but... Games that create personal wealth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> So now the article's starting to pick up. Imagine if every time you spent 99 cents on an extra life in the game Candy Crush Saga, the funds instead were deposited into your retirement account. No longer a guilty habit, your favorite games would fund your personal savings. Okay. So okay. That's actually that's actually an interesting idea. I mean, I don't yeah. know that we need to have yeah. it be in virtual reality. That's that's kind of an hmm, okay. The next one here, the third one up. Games that offer college credit and replace internships. In the STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, young people could learn important skills and contribute to research just by playing their favorite digital games as they, quote, level up. In the STEM games, they would unlock real-world credentials that advance their education and careers. Eh, I can maybe see that. The next one here says, uh, <laughs> games that treat mental health issues. And I'm laughing not at that. I saw something. I skipped ahead. I'm sorry. Games that treat mental health issues. Doctors and therapists could prescribe casual video games similar to Angry Birds or Clash of Clans as a first line of attack against depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. How far-fetched are these scenarios? Not very. In fact, 
versions of games that provide these benefits already exist. As the science fiction author William Gibson famously said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And then it says, uh, what is going on here? This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim. I was reading that stuff word for word. I'm going to skim around some stuff here until you tell me to stop or can it. I don't know what this is about, but it says uh, chocolate fudge. This is uh, in the what? same article. My- <laughs> <laughs> it says, here are a few of the precursors of this future. Researchers in the Netherlands... Uh, recently tested an inhibition training computer game that rewires the brain's positive associations with chocolate, oh. making it easier for players to resist eating chocolate afterward. And experiments at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California, showed that people could be convinced that they were eating different foods, a lime, for example, instead of an orange, with help <sighs> from an Oculus Rift headset and 3D images. Now, that, okay, so... Thinking you're eating a lime to an orange is maybe something, but like tofu to, to burger, that's kind of a big jump. <laughs> it says here, uh, lottery games linked to securities and savings accounts have been introduced in which players are encouraged to save money with the incentive of possibly winning cash prizes. Save to win is the best known prize linked savings account or PLSA which combines the concept of lottery with certificates of deposit sold through credit unions. Players have a chance to win as much as 25 grand every time they make a $25 deposit in a one-year CD. PLSAs are already legal in seven states. New York is expected to become the eighth. I mean, it is like a really interesting idea if you have a game that not so, I mean, you know, obviously free-to-play games are they're trying to make money off of you, right? But... If you have a game that you pay like five bucks for and that's all you ever pay, but you have to then pay yourself in order to play it. Right. It's you, yeah. yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, like it says like, okay, you have to wait an hour now or you have to deposit ninety nine cents into your savings account. You know, an account that you're not supposed to be you're not you're not supposed to be touching, you know. I mean Obviously, you could game that system very easily and just set it up to a bank account that's going right back into. But <laughs> right. you know, if you if you legitimately put some effort into that, that would be a really interesting thing to do. Because if you're thinking that you're spending that money on a hobby, then instead of going the free to play route, where that dollar every time it's spent it's going to somebody else you're playing a game where it's going to you that actually is kind of an interesting concept right I, I do agree I think it's certainly something that could be worked with or you know perfected in time that concept right um, it says I'm going to skip one here I'm going to go to the next one as it discusses Tetris a bit it says the classic video game Tetris has been shown in studies conducted at Oxford University to help uh, prevent flashbacks and other symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder when played within several hours of witnessing a traumatic event. In addition, quote, Super Better, a game I invented to help me heal from a mild traumatic brain injury, has just finished a National Institutes of Health-funded clinical trial and a randomized controlled study at the University of Pennsylvania. Results show that the game significantly decreases depression and anxiety when played for 30 days. Uh, and hospital doctors are already prescribing it as a complement to traditional treatment for serious concussions. 
Hmm. Goes on to discuss some other things. But yeah, so that was the article, uh, games. Is it a game or is it real? I mean, the, says, the, the problem with virtual reality, of course, though, is that there's a lot of game types that aren't going to be playable in VR, right? Like, like how do you do, a, say, a Street Fighter, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's going to be like the days of what, Activate? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, th- there's, because I know even like I've, I've seen, because I mean, I've, I've used Oculus and I've used um, Project Morpheus, both of them. And I think that when they are like first person games and you're in that position, it definitely makes sense. But I think even as soon as it becomes a third person game, like the immersion really gets weird. Well, and not to, uh, to get too into the VR, but uh, as we know, there's Oculus Rift which has made many headlines. There's Project Morpheus being developed uh, primarily by Sony. And then another one that came to light recently is the Steam VR, which I dare say will be called Vive. And according to Edge out of the UK as of right now, of this recording in the spring of 2015, uh, they've kind of got their money on Vive, uh, primarily due to the lasers that are used in the helmet for more accuracy and greater speed over that of the Oculus Rift. Hmm. But we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of competitors, and then I mean, there's also like Microsoft's weird Hololens thing. Oh yes, I yes, yeah, I but, forgot that. But there, yeah. there's been some con- conversation about how what they're showing people and what it actually is are two different things. So no, yeah, I know, hard to believe from but. Microsoft <laughs> and like Connect. Yeah, they never did that. Yeah. Last thing I got here from the Wall Street Journal, and then we'll move off of uh, uh, Dateline NBC here. Uh, This other article, um, I thought this was relevant. This is from May 11th, so this is only a few days old. Do consumers still need game consoles? Let's see if there's anything interesting in here. It says, uh, the world of video games is changing fast. Consoles were the most common platform for games for decades, but PCs have come on strong in recent years. And the number of games being played on tablets and smartphones is surging. Kind of uh, comes back around to what we were discussing about Konami, Konami earlier in the night. According to the Open Gaming Alliance, an association of companies in the gaming industry, global software revenue for PC games overtook revenue for console games in 2012. And the association expects mobile games to top the software revenue of console games in 2019. Those trends suggest to some observers that consoles already are being pushed towards the fringe of gaming market and that it's just a matter of time and not a very long time before they are obsolete. But others think that the console has plenty of staying power. The complexity and visual quality of games played with consoles is hard to match on other platforms. Uh, they say, and consoles have enhanced their appeal by becoming a conduit for other kinds of living room entertainment, like streaming TV shows and movies. And then, um, let's see what we got going on here. We've got, it says, yes, their content is higher quality with a social element. See if there's anything interesting here. It says, uh, with new entertainment options hitting the consumer electronics market all the time, you may get the impression that game consoles are dying. They aren't. In fact, they're thriving, and they'll go on thriving as they build on their evolution into entertainment centers that provide more of what consumers want 
than any of their competition, including an array of content beyond games, but also a social element and a complexity of games that no other platform can match. Consoles have demonstrated their staying power in terms of sales, both the Microsoft Xbox One and the PlayStation 4, the latest version of the two extremely successful brands, are in line with the sale trajectories of their predecessors. The 360 and PS3, those earlier models, have sold more than 85 million units each. Goes on to say, gaming is a form of entertainment, certainly isn't slowing down, but consoles have more uh, going for them than that. They aren't just about playing games anymore. Consoles are being used to stream music, chat on Skype. And most of all, stream the generic video game podcast. <laughs> it says, uh, that's the best proof that a game console is transformed and entertainment hubs, blah, blah, blah. Goes on, let's see, let's skip forward. It says, mobile gaming also can't match the complexity of games played on consoles because consoles have controls that mobile can't easily replicate, allowing for a far greater range of actions. PC gaming typically uses mouse and keyboard combinations for a much different experience then consoles and games like movies are best when rendered on bigger screens. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, obviously I, I like the console option, but I think if we're being realistic, then I see a lot of reasons why um, companies would not want consoles to be around anymore. You know, I mean, doesn't it make more sense for somebody to release like a, th- you know, I mean, because do you have any like the the little, um, not like a Roku or not like an Apple TV, but do you have any of the kind of HDMI plug and play stuff? Uh, technically, yes, because I have a Chromecast. Okay, so you do have one. So I have a Chromecast as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, think about it, like, th- isn't the most logical thing for the PS six or whatever to be like a $39 thing like that and then you plug it into your tv and then it automatically wirelessly connects to your controller and then everything is streamed over the internet and that's the entire experience like i mean does doesn't that make way more sense i I never really looked at it that way because my brain is so wired to think of console gaming in one way but when you say that i can't deny it because i i mean instinct is to say what are you, crazy? You're not going to get the power of that in a HDMI stick? Well, actually, you could yeah. because everything, even in 2015 where we are, what you're able to now stream and get instantaneously on something that's like two inches long and a quarter of an inch thick, yeah, I mean, you don't even... You well, don't no, even but no, again, no, but you're, you're thinking of it wrong, though, I think. You're thinking of like what the hardware is going to be like in that stick. But the the point is you don't need a hardware right. to be in that stick. I mean, right. Cause you could stream. Right. right. I was going to, no, you're exactly yeah, right. Because yeah, of yeah. how everything is streaming now. And no, I agree. So, and I mean, in the future down the road as years go on and they keep perfecting that. Yeah. I mean, I, it, because I, it seems logical. I mean, if, if you think about it, like if, if they want to then have a position seven, you need to buy nothing else. Like, all they do is just say they upgrade their hardware on their side. And all of a sudden, like, okay, now we can give you games that are even more powerful. Right. You know? So, like, there's there's no hardware you need to buy anymore except for that conduit. And the entirety of what they're doing is they're making the money through um, 
what you are paying to access. And then developers are going to love that because, you know, part of, I mean, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but they want control over your access to stuff, right? So right. if you're just streaming everything, they can decide at any time that, okay, this game needs to go away, you know, like, like, or it needs to be changed, you know, if something has happened to the game and we're going to completely remake part of it or something like that, you know, or we need to take this out legally or, or whatever. Um, so it gives, it gives publishers and developers complete control over these games that, that players would not have anymore because, you know, we can just have a disc in our house and have that version of the game forever exist. So I, I said, I think if I'm Sony, if I'm Microsoft, if I'm Nintendo, then absolutely the end game for me is wanting everything to be streamed over the internet gameplay-wise and then you not having any kind of hardware except for that little conduit anymore. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's 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 sad to gamers like us, but it's it's true. Yeah, I mean, because the reason that we get new consoles, you know, is because at a certain point in time, companies know that in order to keep sales from stagnating, they have to give players new hardware and new experiences. Right. Right? You know, I mean, they're not doing it out of goodness of their own heart. If, if you know, I mean, think about back in the NES days, right? Like, for anybody who was around that point, Nintendo... I mean, whether or not it was marketing or not, you know, you don't know. But Nintendo was very adamant about telling people that, like, they didn't need more than the NES, right? <laughs> you know, like, right. you don't need a Genesis. You know, everything you need is in this NES. I mean, so if they could have just one piece of hardware and have no more R&D ever, they would love that. Right. So if they can just do, like, a very quick – I mean, not not – it wouldn't be no R&D, period. You know, they just have to know – what to do on their end to make more powerful hardware that companies could then use to make more more powerful games. But that could happen like every every single year, like they could upgrade the hardware, you know. It would be more like a PC thing where where games could, if they wanted to, like like, you know, um get better and better as that technology was was kind of evolving. Let me ask you this. I don't know if devil's advocate's the right term for this, but you know, do you think they could stop with the Xbox One and PS4 due to all of the updates and streaming capabilities? I mean, do you think that even though in the future they could be perceived as dinosaurs, that you could still utilize those as, as you say, like a conduit, but just to those consoles? I think the problem at this point is that it's not the systems themselves. I think the problem is um, our internet connections aren't there yet. Oh. And we really have to have a, a broadband where they know we can count on, you know, kind of getting the, the level of gaming that people want to have. Right. So I think, I really think it's not like systems. I, I, I absolutely think the systems we have right now could be the systems we had forever. But it was just, yeah, it was, it's just a know, case wow. of, of needing to have um, that broadband in place that would be able to handle that. Mm. Do you think, uh, kind of jumping ahead, jumping around, do you think this could be the last... Uh, set of new units we see in the gaming world the ps4 and the xbox one oh no i i, I definitely think there's ne- those next consoles i mean you, you think there's one more shot at least oh, at least at least one more shot i mean i think the question's gonna be like what those consoles are and in what, what form they come mm. you know i mean because i don't i don't think microsoft was necessarily wrong about wanting to make an all-in-one kind of box mm-hmm. i think maybe they, they didn't go about it the right way 
Right. You know, and it wasn't necessarily the time maybe to do that. But I... Like, I have to think we're going to get at least one more generation because I don't think we're at a point yet where really streaming is, is a viable thing. Mm. I guess the question, though, really is, you know, do do the next systems come in a different form than we're used to? Right. Maybe that's what I'm having trouble with. Right. You know, I because, that's... I mean, if you if you look at, if you look at, like, the iPad, right... I think at this point the iPad is is higher resolution than our televisions are, <laughs> and they don't have the graphics yet. But like mobile, like I mean, to be fair, the 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 GPUs the current consoles have are are basically like mobile video cards. You know, like they aren't like high end kind of stuff. Or I don't know if it's the GPU or the CPU that that are the more mobile end. So I mean. You look at some of the kind of games that are, are being made for like tablets and stuff, and they might not compare yet, but I think we're going to get to a point where the mobile platforms can really do some crazy stuff. So then the question becomes like, is the next console some kind of weird hybrid? Like, I mean, isn't that what everybody's kind of wondering about for Nintendo? Is like, is their next right. system going to really be a handheld and a console like combined together? Right. Like their next hand, right? Like maybe through a, a mini HDMI or something of that yeah, nature, so I, you could use it as a yeah. handheld. And- so I mean, so is 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 an X, Xbox really like a Surface Pro that you just like wow. dock next to your television and then play all your games off of that? You know, or <laughs> you know, we don't know. Mm. Whoa, puppy dog! I know. Yeah. First, is that a neighbor? Yeah. First is the helicopter, and now is the neighbor's dog. <laughs> So yeah, we got a little bit of a little bit of that out of the way. Some uh, serious uh, gaming chatter, I guess. Uh, outside of that, uh, something that's been making headlines, I feel more again as of late. While it's something that's not new anymore, I feel like Kickstarter has been uh, in the gaming news more often than not as of late. Once again, uh, everything. I'll just throw some stuff out here, and then we can dig in everything from. Uh, Igarashi's new Bloodstained Ritual of the Night to updated looks at Mighty Number no. 9 from the recent Indie 2015 show in Japan uh, to more obscure stuff like the Bitmap Brothers book, which I supported, as well as the Arju Boy uh, card-sized gaming, which Shidoshi supported. So there's a whole wide spectrum of things going on. Everything from physical print media to smaller hardware architecture to traditional games etc so uh kickstarter has been in the news a lot as of late i would say the most uh popular has been igarashi's new spiritual successor to castlevania yeah i mean this is definitely like the, the big story right now you know and like it's it's a really interesting situation you know and so first of all the thing to understand is that um this kickstarter is not completely funding the game right so initially the goal for bloodstained was five hundred thousand dollars and my understanding is is that amount was ten percent of the funding that they had found from a publisher which would mean you know about a five million dollar budget and the Kickstarter's purpose 
was to show that publisher that there was legitimate interest in this game out there. You know. Now, I'm cheating because I have the page opened up in real time right. live as we speak here on this evening. And that number, if you do the math, if if they needed 10%, which was a half a million dollars as proof, right now they're exceeding 40%. Because as of this sitting, with 26 days to go, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is sitting at 2.1 million dollars with over 28,000 backers. How much how much did my number 9 end up getting from its first Kickstarter? I dare say without cheating in a little bit over 4 million. Okay. Cuz I was going to say like I wonder what's what's really interesting about this is you know, I'm obviously we don't know what the business deal that was done for for this game in terms of like publisher stuff. Right. But what would be actually really cool is if it was a case of however much this Kickstarter raised kind of retains rights for Ega um for this game. I said I like, I don't I don't I don't know that like I don't know that he is giving up rights to the game. You know, I don't know if just a publisher is going to kick that money in uh or whatever, but if this helps it be more retained by him, that would be kind of cool. Um but I think what it's going to basically mean is just that they have extra budget because you know, it's it's not not the case of the publisher is giving them like 90% beyond like what they get, you know. So it's not going to be like, oh, now they get $20 million because they've raised, you know, $2 million. I, I, It's going to be the publisher still kicking in that, that $5 million, but this is helping to go and add things that weren't going to be in there originally. But no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, keep going. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that, like, I think what's interesting about this, and it's also the kind of thing that came with my number nine, is, you know, Kickstarters like this bring up the question of, are publishers wrong in terms of the appeal of games and the desire of games? And I think it's a, comp- a more complicated conversation than I think we sometimes think. Agreed, because my, my gut reaction, my knee-jerk reaction is, yes, of course they're wrong, because look at the success of stuff like this in such a short span of time. Yet simultaneously, if that were truly the case, then why have we seen either so many classic style games or rebirths of certain titles go down to the $10 bin after a couple months? That's, yeah, that's okay. So part of it is like, okay, if there really is this huge amount of support, I mean, I know, and unfortunately, we don't have our Konami conversation at this point, but, um, you know, so Konami might not be the greatest example to use here, but if there really is this much support behind a game, then wouldn't that publisher still be supporting it? Right, because you would think that they're turning money down, and and if they're so worried about money, like right, right, you know. So I mean, I think I think part of the thing is, you know, what in a weird way, it's like the, the whole Coke situation, right? So back in the day, Coke had Coke was losing ground to Pepsi, and they decided that what they needed to do was change their formula, and so they changed the formula and they brought out new Coke. And a lot of people hated it, not necessarily because um, they, the actual taste was bad, but because something that was considered to be like an American tradition almost, you know, had been had been mucked around with. Mm-hmm. And that original Coke was gone. And so sales tanked, 
Coke said, we're sorry we screwed up. They brought the old Coke back. And then and then Coke got back into the winning position as term, in terms of sales, right? So how does it relate to this? Well, what, what I'm saying is, is I think sometimes until something isn't going to be there, people don't come out and support it to the level they once did. Right. I was going to say similar. Like, are they supporting Bloodstain to this extent because the guns to their head? Yeah. I, I think it's kind of like, <clears throat> I think it's kind of like, you know, this is a chance for fans to show, be like, you guys are wrong. We still want this game, right? But you're looking at the page I'm looking at. And let's be honest the backers right now are only 28,000 people. Uh, yeah. I think you're a step ahead of me, right? You're thinking my train of thought. Yeah, and and twenty eight thousand people buying a game in the real world is nowhere near enough to justify that game existing, and we're already saying the fact that that even at two million, it is it is four times what the Kickstarter originally asked for. Even at four times that amount, it's still not even half of what this game's actual budget is. Well, and even this, we could be nice. Let's be nice. They're at about 20. Let's round. They're at 30,000 backers, we'll say. Even if you triple that, that's still less than 100,000 copies of the game selling. Right. Now, admittedly, one of the other big things that we're leaving out is, and correct me if I'm wrong. Well, and you know what? This situation is so unique because there is a there is another party involved. But under normal circumstances on Kickstarter, you're cutting out the like the middleman, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, that that that's a big chunk right there. But once again, with Bloodstained, this is a little bit more complex than your standard Kickstarter. Yes, yeah. And this is, a, this is not really a game living or dying off of Kickstarter. I mean, right. it, well, except for in the way of this is showing that there is enough interest that – the, the publisher, I guess, you know, came up with some arbitrary number that they decided was an important number to say, okay, if you show that fans will kick in $500,000 towards this game, then we are convinced enough that it'll make us the money we need to have back in order to give you money to make it. Right. Like I said, as of right now, this is not a game that would exist if it were just people kickstarting it because there's no way this game would be made for $500,000. You know. Oh right, and and right, and I don't want to. I don't want to get off the topic of bloodstained just yet. Uh, we'll give a little background to fans if they've been living under a rock with no computer or communication <laughs> for the last week. But speaking of dollars, cents, and um, producing a game at the end of it all, look, the game I'm going to mention right now is not done. Uh, they've only shown a little bit of it. And I'm really pulling for it, and I'm going to support it no matter what. But I saw some new footage of Mighty Number no. 9 from the Indie 2015 show within the last 10 days. And if you just want a quick, my quick feeling before dissecting it, I was not impressed. Yeah. And that really hurts me to say that. I hate saying that. Like, I feel like a piece of garbage <laughs> for saying that. But cutting all the fat out. Straight up, I was not impressed. And that was for something that was given over $4 million. Now, 
that doesn't mean the you know you throw money at something it's going to be good. You still have to create like you know. Well, and and, and, and them- to be fair, that was one of two kickstarters for that game, right? They actually had to go back to Kickstarter and do it again. Oh, you cr- oh! I thought Tim Schafer was the only one doing that game, so to speak. No, I, I, I think that. I think there no. were two different. You know I mean? My number nine. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think you're exactly right. I think it was one that wasn't required by like, but they requested for X, Y, and Z. Right. I think you're exactly right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I, I don't know what to say. Uh, before we get back to Bloodstained, have you taken a look at Mighty Number no. Nine as of late? I mean, I. I not as of late. I did play it at last year's TGS a little bit, and I have seen some things for it, and I can understand your concerns about it. I think the character looks cool. I like the concept on paper. What unimpressed me was, wasn't really crazy about the backgrounds of what I saw, which, mind you, is pretty much the same thing they keep showing, which that scares me in and of itself this close to launch in September. Also, the platforming I saw, like, it looked real straightforward. Like, there was nothing, yeah. didn't look anything too complicated or too, you know, gamey, so to speak. It looked real. Now, mind you, that game could blow wide open after that level they're shown. Maybe they're holding some of their cards. You know, I'm trying to be fair. Also, as I mentioned to you in private... The game looks strikingly similar in some ways in terms of its mold, like presentation, to the 2.5D Mega Man that hit PlayStation Portable uh, six or seven years ago. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the problem, and this is something I'm kind of also concerned with with Bloodstained, is because I'm looking at the the Kickstarter page for My Number 9 right now, and that initial artwork was so neat for that game. Like the visual style and everything, and then you kind of have like other shots where you're like, okay, this could potentially be like cell shaded third three uh, D character models. But I'm not sure, you know. And then you kind of see the game, and it, it looks like nothing like I was kind of expecting. So I think this is actually something that's kind of dangerous with with Kickstarters is that they kind of have these concept shots of what the game is going to be, but the final game doesn't end up looking anything like that. And said so I'm also really worried about bloodstained you know but i mean knowing what knowing how they're doing it i am more hopeful but it still is a concern of like okay is this game gonna you know if i give money right now i'm giving money because i'm looking at this concept art and saying that game looks really neat but if the game that i then get is totally different looking that kind of like grips me the wrong way you know now, I read this whole page a couple days ago. I don't have it memorized, but I will say this. One, I completely agree with you. That's one of my biggest fears is that they have to get the look of this game down correctly. Uh, otherwise, it may fall into Mighty Number no. 9 territory. With that being said, I did see in all fairness on their Kickstarter page somewhere that along the way with interaction with their fans, they do plan to, quote, like nail the look, meaning they claim that they'll make adjustments along the way to get a look that's satisfactory. So right. if that's true, that could be a big, that's a big win if they really mean that. You know what I mean? So if, they, if they're serious about that, then that alleviates that that thought or pressure on the fan. But um, also just looking at the concept art, which, you know, doesn't mean diddly squat, really. I completely agree. If you glance at that character art, like, okay, if you showed me that concept art, and no text and no nothing. 
and you said, who do you think is working on that? I would have said Vanillaware. You think so? Uh, not like, mind you, we're not looking at this like in Sprite or running on our TV. We're talking like, um, you know, just concept art. If I would have glanced. Yeah, no, I, I, I can kind of see it. I, I get a little bit of a Vanillaware vibe. I can, I can kind of see that. Now, my issue I have with the concept art, and I shouldn't be picking it apart this much, is my fear is I don't want the game to look too flashy, like a Flash game. Right. Uh, also, I believe I also read that one of the choices they did make for this is I dare say it's going to use the Unreal 4 engine. Yes. So that must be a pretty friendly engine for developers because a lot of stuff has been coming out of the woodworks uh, using that. Well, and it's interesting because they, they actually do mention um, like what um, Arc did with that engine for... You know the the new guilty oh, the new guilty gear. Yes, which that does yes. give me a little bit of hope when they talk about yes. that because they're saying like they want to do a similar yes. kind of style. I'm trying to figure out um, who the artist is for these characters because you're talking about like what you thought when you first saw it, but when I see the actual art art for this game, like the very first thing I thought or makes me think is um, deception. Oh yeah, like Tecmo's uh, deception game. You're sa- I'm assuming you're saying that because of the female lead and the blue, like the certain. Well, just like just, I mean, just the art style as well, like just really looks to me like that kind of. Yeah, because it's, it's definitely I me mean, because they they couldn't get um, Kojima. Is that her name? The Ayami Kojima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love. She's one of my favorite artists. Yeah, they were saying she was busy because I mean, that's that's one of the complaints I heard was that everybody really thought it should be her, and I mean that would make a lot of sense, right. but that she was not available. Um, to do it. I don't want to wish her any financial ill because I don't want to be in control of someone's job, but uh, I'm going to say this. Uh, I wish Konami would release her tomorrow and then she could yeah. get in on some of this Kickstarter money Yeah, because her her artwork is awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, because I mean, when you think about Castlevania games, like you think about her artwork. That's, right. There's nothing else you can really think of in terms of that. You know, I said it, it's going to be really interesting. I think... The same thing I would say about this is the same thing about, about my number nine is that I think what isn't in question about support is the first game. I think where the question my question comes in is the second game because it's well, I, I'm missing. I missed that. Explain that. Well, so it's very very easy to tell people, "Hi, I'm you know Keiji Nafune. Right, right. Oh, I want to bring you." Mega Man, because right. Konami, I mean, Capcom has not brought you a proper Mega Man for years and years and years. I want to go off and make my own Mega Man and revive that series. It's very easy to get people behind you to do that. Or have Koji Igarashi come out and say, I've wanted to make the proper Castlevania for years and years and years. Konami wouldn't let me. Please support me in making this, right? It's very easy to get support when you're doing that. But then having people stick around and then support you the second time. That's going to be very, very tough. Especially, I mean, like, I don't think these games can go back and do Kickstarters again, right? Because that would seem very, very bizarre to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to disagree. You don't think they a can? A little bit. I think they can come back. Hmm. I, like, you're saying, like... Okay, wait, wait. Let me clarify. Can Igarashi come back a second time for money for a different game? Is that the first question? No, for, for Bloodstained 2. 
Yeah, so you're saying like, let's say this game came out, it's done, done deal, he got the money, and then six months later he's like, hey, I want to do Bloodstained 2, will you support it? Is that the question? Yes. Yes, if the first one is great. The first one has to be great. That's the thing, and that's the problem, that's one of the things I was thinking about, it's interesting you bring this up. That's one of the fears I have with Mighty Number no. 9, because if Mighty Number no. 9 for Inafune or whatever leaves a bad taste in one's mouth, I think he'll get some people returning, but it's going to be much tougher. Now, let's let's do wishful thinking here. Let's say Bloodstained comes out as good as Symphony of the Night, and like everybody's doing backflips and crapping themselves, and like it's, it's a, a 9 or a 10. I don't think he'd have any problem getting that money again, but... In contrast, and I, I know I'm dogging Mighty Number no. Nine without even having touched it. I could be dead wrong, but if that thing comes out mediocre, there ain't no way that another Mighty Number no. Nine is gonna. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that, but I think part of my problem, the argument I would make is, if if Bloodstained comes out and it's amazing, right, and people love it, right. But if he has to go to Kickstarter to make Bloodstained 2, then is he not proving Konami right? That that these games do not make enough money to sell See, properly. This, this is so tricky because... Because on, you, gotta, you have to remember on Kickstarter, you're yeah. not just buying the game. There are, there are you know, $150 backings, $175... 250, 300, 500, 750, 1,500, 1,550, 2,000. There's all these things that people are are kicking in because this is a very special first release, you know, a, a first a first game and a new project that's trying to revive an old kind of way of gaming. That you're having to give people all these different kinds of special things, 5,000, 7,500, 8,500, like all these kind of options for, for buying stuff that help fund this game that aren't just I'm, $60, $50 copies. I'm going to compare apples and oranges here and then and, and explain the problem with this. The problem with this, when I say this, I'm talking video games, is... And especially with Bloodstained, is you have another company involved. And what I mean by that is, if this was the type of thing where Bloodstained was done by uh, Igarashi, and le- I'm making, let's make up a number, and five other people he knows, I'm just making this crap up. So you got a team of six. Those are the only six people involved. They're working out of a basement. He's programming. You got one guy boxing it, one person doing the art. And then when and then when launch day comes, they they do it all themselves and they ship it out old school, right? Mm-hmm. They used Kickstarter. They got the money directly. They did all the work themselves. They handled the money how they're supposed to. They could go back to Kickstarter fifty times because there's no one else. There's no publisher, and they're doing it all out of their basement. Yes, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. But. But in this instance, it's tricky, like you say, because it's – so that's apples. Here's oranges. How I feel Kickstarter works, how it's supposed to work, and, and I lose track of this because I get caught up in the hype and all that. I'm going to give you another example. You remember me bragging about that Mega Drive book last year from the UK 
which Sega approved, and and uh, it was unbelievable. That I was so impressed with it that the same people or the same person primarily, and I'm I know his name is Darren. I just want I'm trying to get a plug. Darren Wall. To put this into perspective, recently he did a Kickstarter for a book on the Bitmap Brothers, which is a team that was well-renowned throughout Europe and Mm -hmm. out of the UK. And I'm not going to lie to you. You ready for this? You ready for how stupid this is going to sound? I don't really know jack about the Bitmap Brothers. If you tested me right now, only because of stuff I looked up on them last week and some stuff that jogged my memory, I really couldn't have told you crap about the Bitmap (laughs) Brothers. So you're like... Why did I spend the 60 bucks on this book coming out later this year if I didn't know anything about him? Because the first book that they did on the topic that I did know was so was done so well that when I saw this, I said, I don't want to miss this. Right. Because the qual- because he was he only had one delay and the quality of that book was phenomenal and he said this is going to outdo that and it's it's going to be something fresh for me, something obscure, not all information that I, you know, a lot of it that I don't know. This is all going to be new to me. The point is, there's an example of a Kickstarter where this guy can keep coming back and I keep supporting it because it's almost one-to-one. No, but yeah, but that's kind of, I think that's more like a niche level. That's like specialty kind of stuff. This is where it gets, and here's the thing, that thing raised, I think, over like Mm $60,000. But this gets trickier now in the gaming realm because even on a smaller scale, the the amount of people necessary or parties involved is still grander than than that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I, yeah. I, I, said, I think that if you if you're making games where you have to kickstart each one, I think that's not a sustainable situation unless you are like the really you know I mean I don't know if you ever played that game uh, Dust and Elysian Tale. Yes, but that was I mean ninety percent of that game was like one person, right? That's unbelievable. Except for the, you know, except for the music and stuff like that. You can have someone like that going to Kickstarter for stuff, absolutely, because that makes sense for that situation. But if you are someone like Igarashi, and you're saying Konami wouldn't support these games, I know the fans are out there, and this comes out and its sales on its own don't support a second game. Like I said, that's kind of proving Konami right, and that's proving that this kind of game does not have an audience outside of a very small niche of players. I, I think an interesting thing I was thinking about was um, Demon Souls or the Souls games, you know? Mm-hmm. Demon Souls is a game that came out. It's a very, very small game. Nobody expected much from it. Um, it blew everybody's ex- expectations away. And because it did that, then they made a deal with Bandai, now I'm called Bandai, to do Dark Souls. And then Dark Souls came out and it got even bigger. And then, you know, Sony came back and like, wow, we really screwed up that Demon Soul thing. Let's make a game with you. And then not only did Dark Souls 2 come out, but then, you know, Bloodborne came out. So that's an example of a game really growing its audience. Right. And finding a place out there and making sense for the developer and publisher sides both. You know, something that could have been a really niche title, really exploding and finding an audience. And so what I want to see from Bloodstained is, does that audience actually exist? Because it, can't, it cannot just be 28,000 people buying this game. Which, I mean, obviously by the end, of, when it ends, it still has 26 days left. It won't be 28,000. Right. right. 
but you know it has to it has to i mean it really has to be you know a decent amount of people do do you think let's say this comes out and does fairly well for kickstarter and they and they get their money and it profits a bit and i'm making this up too do you think someone like a capcom could step in for bloodstain 2 and take that chance even though it would be ironic in terms of almost going back to square one where do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, do you think, or should I say, do you think a third party would then look at this for a potential, if it does well, and then they see a sequel and they're like, hey, let's jump in. This kind of proved itself. We'll take it and we'll handle it this time and publish it because it's guaranteed money. I mean, I, I think that from what I know about publishers, like something they love is when a studio can handle a lot of the financing on their own. And when it's basically just a, hey, we need to just, help you release it like that if so if the game can get into that position i think it'd be perfect for anybody you know um hmm. it's gonna be the question of like how much a, a publisher would need to kick in to help the development going forward if it's not right. a super huge hit hmm. and i don't know what a super huge hit for this would be you know i mean it's it's interesting because um you know like what tomb raider the new tomb raider game Sold like four million, and, and Square Enix was saying it was a failure because of selling four million. You know, whereas Demon Souls, I think when it hit five hundred thousand copies for Atlas, was a blockbuster hit. <laughs> right. And you have companies like NIS who can sell a game, you know, fifty thousand copies of a game, and that's all they need to sell, and they make decent money off of that. You know, because they're they're basically in a translation and publishing position. They're not actually developing the game at all. So the question is like, what does what does this game need to do, you know, sales wise, in order to make it make sense for for a sequel? And can it get to the point? I mean, the best case scenario for Ega and the team would be they make enough money that they can fully fund the next game. So all they need to do is just find a publisher to help them out, because this it's, this Bloodstain is coming out physically. Right. Um, so if you find a publisher to help you with the physical side of it and whatever like that, and then you keep most of the profits and you keep the rights, that's the absolute best case scenario for them. I also feel the need to say this uh, on recording before I forget. Whether the game comes out to be good, bad, and different, what have you, I will go out and say as of this point, I thought that Kickstarter video that they did was the best Kickstarter video I've seen so far. It was fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I it, it, was... it really like caught the atmosphere and stuff and like it really made you mm-hmm. kind of excited for it and everything. And, you know, I think like something that, something that somebody brought up, which is really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously you have a situation with like my number nine, right? And there's, you aren't just going to have him stealing Mega Man characters and putting them in the games and stuff. But what's interesting about Castlevania is it used so many classic monsters that there's really no reason they couldn't do that yeah like, like there, you wouldn't see a lot of that again like the werewolf or frankenstein or something like, yeah they, they could have dracula if they wanted him they could have the werewolf they could have medusa they could have all those things and i think it's gonna be a case of just not wanting to be that castlevania-esque you know but it's it's funny because unlike so many other projects there's nothing stopping them from bringing in so many of these kind of classic Castlevania characters. Right. And and I'll say this. Uh, I've said this before on other podcasts in the past and people I know in private. And I don't know why I feel the need to continually share it. 
like it's the greatest idea in the world. The one that I always wanted to see in terms of crossovers and, and licenses that we never got to see. I always wanted to see a Castlevania and Vampire Hunter D crossover. Uh, see, I was like never into Vampire Hunter D. Like I know that was like super big for a while. And there are people who just absolutely loved that series. But Wow, really? No, 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 you I didn't just, like I that? Didn't, I never really Did you ever watch um, the, the sequel? I, I saw very small bits of it. Oh, oh! You have to. You have to. I'll, I'll buy it for you down the road. <laughs> I, th- I think they're going to re-release it finally on Blu-ray after all these years. No, se- not dead serious. The sequel, and I'm not just saying this, was almost like a Symphony of the Night gone anime form. Like the quality of the animation and the way they cuz there was the 1984 vampire hunter d right. which i which i still really like i love it right but if you look at it you know the animation is dated and limited frames and all that kind of stuff but that second one oh it was fun- i mean it was phenomenal like especially from an artistic and animation standpoint i don't know how that one got away from you are you ready for me to blow your mind are you ready for me to <laughs> Tell you the th- and it was like a love story, technically. It was really good. Keep, yes. Are you ready for me to tell you the thing that will make you forever question my ability to talk about <laughs> anything anime? <laughs> I have never seen Akita. What? I have never seen it. Say what? <laughs> but how is that possible? Because I got to the point, like, I was at that age where I was just kind of rebellious in some ways. And it's okay. So, and I'm, I'm admitting to this. I'm, I'm telling everybody this. So, I got into anime, like, in a really weird way. Um, I don't know if I ever explained it on this show or not. But I got into it because I got into manga. And through manga... I got connected with people who would send me like videotapes of anime and stuff like that. So I was getting yeah, into it at a point yeah. where you really couldn't just go to a store and buy it. There were a few things for anybody like super old school. Um, like U.S. renditions had a few things out at that point. I think maybe like Gunbuster was out, um, and then Streamline Pictures was doing their kind of thing of like bringing things over and dubbing it and changing the storylines and stuff like that. So there were a few companies releasing anime, but it really wasn't a thing it like you didn't go to stores and have anime sections it was you went to a comic shop and if they knew about this kind of stuff they might have some tapes there for sale but it wasn't really like an established thing at that point so i got into it and when it was like still a really big tape trading thing and so i was into this stuff like way before a lot of people so when people started coming into the the fandom i was one of those kind of you know, oh, did you feel you were an elitist here, and you yes, felt it was, I was too mainstream? I was like, I was here first. You know, I knew about this stuff like way before any of you guys did, and you're kind of like bandwagon jumpers and stuff. And so, one of the things that everybody just would not shut up about was Akira. Like everybody knew that, everybody loved it. It was like the super major thing. So I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to watch this anime because I'm just going to protest it because. <laughs> It's one of these things that all these these you know fake fans keep right. throwing in my face about anime. I'm gonna watch like the real stuff while they're watching that. 
Well, I, I want to stay on this topic for a little bit, and I've always wanted to discuss anime in more depth on uh, GVGP, so I think this is a prime opportunity because uh, we've talked about Kickstarter for a bit here. Let's let's break away for a moment. So th- there's a few things I want to say. One, I have not lost all respect for you. <laughs> Uh, secondly, let's start with Akira. I'm not going to sit here and lie and be like, you know, I always loved Akira and I was always into it and, you, and you're and you crazy and, you know, you've lost all value in terms of your opinion. When I first saw Akira, it was the sliced and diced version. I even want to say it was on the sci-fi channel. And I was probably around 11 or 13 when I saw it. And... I didn't have the knowledge or understanding of animation that I do now. <clears throat> I was obviously a lot younger in life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I mean, I saw it. I thought some of it looked kind of cool, but I never sat through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, as I got older, uh, probably around 17-ish, whenever they did the DVD re-release and the tin case and all that, I took advantage of that and got that. And I said, you know, I've never owned this. I've never actually given it a proper viewing. And I picked it up. Now, upon seeing it at that point years later, and I'm not just saying this, I would consider it as an adult, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. But the asterisk I put by that is I also feel if you're younger when watching that, like when I was like 11 or 12, I can also see why I it didn't click with me. Like, does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. because you get into things like, the, you know, it has stuff like with the military. There's some political aspects. There's, um, it, it, it has a lot of mature themes that I think you can look and take in, at, you know, when you're younger. But I don't think they have the same effect on you until you're older. You know what I'm trying to say yeah. in certain imagery in the film? So from that perspective as an adult, I would consider it one of the greatest movies I've seen. Um, on another aside, the the movie that I did feel was my the greatest movie of all time at one time. I don't know if I'd still rank it that high, but I felt Princess Mononoke was tremendous out of this park. That's actually like not one of my favorite studio ghibli movies i do Uh, i i do like it but it's Mm -hmm. it's um like not one of my first go-tos i would say i'll also say this i'm not one of those people that when i get a movie i like i watch it again and again and again Mm -hmm. i've seen it a couple times i actually have the blu-ray sitting here brand new i haven't watched the blu-ray transfer yet i saw mononoke in theaters when it came out here in the stateside release So I'll say this, and maybe my feelings will be... And I have watched it since then, but not recently. When I saw it in theaters, when I left the theater that night, the feelings I had that night, I thought it was the greatest movie. I really liked it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I did really like it, and I thought it was interesting. Um, it's just... Yeah, it's like it's it's kind of in, it's kind of funny because I, it's almost like his movies, there's one of two that's kind of like the big adventure stuff. And there's a kind of quieter you know, more character-driven stuff. Uh-huh. So I think um, anime-wise, I kind of gravitate more towards Kiki or Totoro or stuff like that. 
Those are yeah. I mean, there's no denying those or, are great yeah. uh, as well. Yeah, or like um, Ar- Arietti too. I really liked, but I mean, I, I do, I do like the more actiony stuff. Um, the only one like is I'm I'm really torn on Naushka because that was one of my absolute like favorite mangas as, when I was uh-huh. young, and that's like that's like one of the things I really credit the most to getting me into anime in the first place. So if you've read the manga and then you watch like the the movie, it's just it's so cut down, and and so kind of just a small part of the overall story that it's it's kind of hard to appreciate it. So I th- uh, <clears throat> in contrast back to Akira, and I am not Akira expert. I want to say if I remember correctly, the Akira movie technically only takes you through the third book of six. But I know there's Akira fans out there that will listen to this, and I know they'll slice and dice me if I'm wrong. But I think that's a similar ordeal where technically you don't get the whole Akira story from all the manga. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I mean, I do think I've heard that's the case. So Right. But now, in terms of at, what got me into anime, the three big ones that I remember that, like, the ones that clinched it were Lensman, uh, Vampire Hunter D., and uh, Tank Police. Hmm. And then it went from there. And admittedly, a lot of that was from the festival, the sci-fi festival of anime. Right. But th- I want to say the very first one I remember, though, like was uh, Lensman, which I know isn't remembered like greatly. It was pretty much like an anime version of Tron, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember it very well, but I do remember, yeah. I do remember it existing. I'm trying to think, because like, yes, it's, it's really funny, because when I first was getting into anime stuff, it was crazy because I was getting these tapes and said sometimes they were just like, okay, somebody's going to put three movies onto one tape. And sometimes it was like, there's literally like 80 different animes on this, on this tape. And it's just like <laughs> 15 minute chunks of from here or there or stuff like that. Right. And it was so funny because I would see this stuff and be like, oh my God, there's like a cartoon version of these comics I love, you know, for some of these right. titles. Like I don't remember if that's how I saw the the Appleseed anime for the first part, but I was really big into Appleseed the 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 comic, you know. So seeing these kind of things. So, but the anime that really really got me into stuff, um, like the biggest has to be Dirty Pair. Like I was a huge Dirty Pair fan, and I actually still am. Uh, just adore that series so much, and I adore the the movies and stuff. So Dirty Pair is like one of the biggest for me. Um, Project Aiko was super huge. Uh, that was one of the earliest ones I saw, mind you, the edited, the sci-fi version, mm-hmm. but I that was an early one for me too. Yeah, so Aiko was really big. Um, I had seen, so it's funny because like I said, like, one of my really, to be honest, one of my first interactions with anime was seeing it on Showtime because they would have the the... Like Shogun Warriors, Guy King, and stuff like that. Oh my God, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, so this was back like when I wow. when I really didn't understand that it was anime. Right to me, it was God, just ha- it was just a cartoon. Right, and I, I didn't realize that it was these Japanese things. And so they had like all that kind of like Sentai stuff and and or giant robot stuff. And then I think maybe they I saw some of the like Robotech stuff through them. But then I remember seeing the the actual Macross movie, um, do you remember Love? And that was one of the movies too that like kind of really got me. I'm like, wow, this is cool because this is so much different. Because I was so used to seeing like the kind of the the dubbed and cut up TV shows, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then to see like the original Japanese 
full length kind of more mature movie and and granted at this point i'm watching all this stuff with no english voices no subtitles nothing wow so i'm just having to pick up on what i can tell just from watching it because i didn't i didn't speak any japanese whatsoever at this point (laughs) so it was just me like watching these things and like trying to figure out like what was going on in them and, and stuff now on, on the Macross Robotech note, I've always wanted to kind of get into it, but the reason I've never fully gotten into it is because I'm so scared. I'm not familiar with all the dilemma and like, isn't there like a a, a portion of that fan base that's like the versions we got here are like terrible? So yeah, so the- so I, I mentioned Streamline, and and Streamline was headed by a guy named Carl Masek, and he was famous or infamous or both for he would license um and this was back when it was very easy to license anime and you could just do whatever you wanted with them because it wasn't a big market in in america yet right so he would license um anime series and then he would um edit them or change the storylines or uh, crop together different things. So, so Robotech actually, and I'm trying to think of what they were. So, there was of course Macross, and and Macross was, you know, you think about the the airplanes that turn into robots, right? And you know, mysteriously, when you bought your Jetfire toy from Transformers, he didn't look anything like he did in the cartoon. Because he was basically the the Macross toy, just licensed as a Transformers toy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You didn't know that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not as well versed on this. On on. So yeah. the, the, the character in Transformers named Jetfire, um, who I think okay, he's isn't there like I, I know Starscream and yeah, those are the those are the regular planes. But so the right. the Autobots got a plane, and he's either named Jetfire or Skyfire, depending on on where what he's in, if you know what series or whatever. Um, okay. But in in the cartoon, he's this red and white plane that transforms. I mean, the, the robot that transforms into kind of a more like alien looking jet airplane kind of thing. Okay, it doesn't look as traditional as the uh, Decepticons no. ones. I'm assuming. No, but when you got the toy, it was this kind of white F sixteen. I think it was <laughs> that had. Um, <clears throat> these weird red armor attachments that you could attach onto him. And he didn't look anything like he did in the cartoon. I mean, other than being a white and red right. plane robot. Right. And he had this weird in-between mode where he could be a plane still, but have legs and arms and stuff. And you're like, okay, the, but I mean, back in that point, you know, there was, it was kind of common to have, have the toys look like the cartoon characters. Right. But what it was, was it was, that was literally just the, the Macross, um, Valkyrie fighters, they had licensed to be this Transformers toy. But so okay. And is that? Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, is it all because of the one dude having the license and then just letting and just? I'm not sure how I'm work. not sure how that happened. I don't mm. I don't know the whole Transformers side of it. But so okay, so Carl Masek licenses uh, Macross, but he also licensed uh, was it Southern Cross or Mesopotamia? So there's these other there's another. Japanese series that, for example, has this kind of um, 
she has like short blonde hair and she's like a, a gray and red armor and then she rides this kind of blue bike and the bike could transform into a pseudo armor so what he did was he he found a few different anime titles that kind of all had similar themes and he literally went would go in and splice things together and I, I'm trying to think, because I had seen some of the original Macross TV series, and I don't think at first you get too much of the other series is coming in. But it, as it goes on, you get like, okay, I'm trying to think, is it Robotech, Southern Cross, something like that? So he has like these other, these kind of spinoff Robotechs that come in to the storyline that he was taking these other titles he had licensed and basically merging them together into one gigantic story at a point when mm. they really had no connection originally. Really? Yeah. Um, so he mm. would do that. And, and, you know, he so he was using kind of just the raw footage from some of these kind of things and switching them around sometimes or, you know, editing the storylines or whatever. And so he was one of the first real... Um, uh, well, his company, Streamline Pictures, was one of the first companies to really do a lot of anime releases in America. Right. So it's interesting because at first they were kind of um it's almost in a weird way like working designs. Is like at f- I was just going to say name them twice tonight but yeah. Victor Ireland yes. a little bit like the Victor Ireland of the anime industry. Yeah, so at first it was kind of like wow, this person's helping to bring us all this stuff. But then the more you kind of go yeah. along and the more you actually learn about what's going on, you realize he kind of tarnishes it. And you become extent. a fan, you're like actually this guy's kind of like butchering a lot of stuff when he's bringing it over. So he wow. kind of goes from being the good guy to the bad guy uh, mm. in, in certain ways. To the point that he would, like, if you were an anime fan back then, he would just get, you know, ridiculed mercilessly in, in certain circles and stuff like that. Mm. But so, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of, that's so, Macross is a really tough thing because for so long, and I think even it's a problem even still to this day, is that, uh, it was Streamline Pictures, and but then I think it's now Harmony Gold has the rights to it. That um, the Western side of Macross has for so long been the Robotech stuff and not the original Macross stuff. Man, that, it's so convoluted. And on the Japanese side, I think the part of the problem was is that they're so picky about... Um, who gets what now? So it's it. It's right. it, the problem is it's really complicated. So it's hard for me to even explain because I don't even know all the details on the, it. I'm assuming the Japanese probably don't even want to get involved with like they probably. I don't think even it's a really like tough this. situation now. So I know there was a, a box set of Robotech that came out at a certain point recently, and I know that AD I, Vision at one point was releasing mm. some of it, and I think there have been attempts to bring over the original Macross, but I like sit here right now and tell you how to get it would be tough for me to to give you a recommendation. Right. So uh, speaking of anime and older titles, uh, as I've said in the past, I've given the plugs to Crunchyroll, which I still haven't enjoyed. But uh, do you get uh, Hulu Plus? I do. Uh, I don't know what the deal is, but as of late, they've been getting more, not only anime on there, but I noticed they've been putting some more of the older stuff and some of the stuff we've discussed this evening. Furthermore... Unless my eyes are going crazy, some of the stuff, not all of it, have even been HD upgraded or at least gotten a DVD quality facelift. I'm talking the old stuff. You might want to check that out if you're bored. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I have not actually... I, mean, I don't even know if I told you my, my Hulu thing. So 
I have this really weird thing where, um, so I, I, I watch a lot of Hulu or Netflix when I'm like eating lunch or whatever, you know, when I just like right. want to sit down and just need like a half an hour. Some background noise. Yeah. And my thing is I just keep watching Law and Order SVU over and over oh. and over again. I just like keep <laughs> looping through that whole series. And I don't know why I do it, but I, I just do that. Mm. And the problem is I've got now like two or three years of cues I've built up on these kind of things where like I'm going to come back to this later on and watch it. I never right. actually do. So I went through one day and because I had noticed how much anime um, Hulu was getting. Right. And so I went through one day and like added a bunch of stuff to my queue, but I've never actually gone back and watched it. It's crazy. And like I said, as of late, over the last couple of months, they've added some like older stuff that I hadn't. I was like, what? And it's crazy that it's embarrassing that I'm even looking in the anime section there with my backlog on Crunchyroll. I've got no business even looking at what Hulu's got. But, yeah, take a look. I think you're going to be surprised. That's what I was going through. That's going to right now to kind of look and see what – I don't know because I don't know if they have any of the Macross stuff or anything. I don't – I think they may, but under – I'm so confused on that. Okay. That's not my thing. Yeah, okay, so – okay. So, yeah, so – all right, here's the thing. Now, wait. This is a clip, though. This isn't – this is an actual episode. Ghost in the Shell, Star Blazers. It looks like they have – this is – I don't understand Hulu. Like you're saying, you don't understand Robotech. I don't understand Hulu because <laughs> they have clips on here of the Macross saga. <laughs> I guess because they're trying to tell you to watch it on Spike or something like that. So they 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 do have clips of it, but I don't know that they have. Oh my god, what are you playing? They don't know that they have the actual full thing. Now, are you looking at the free internet version without being logged in? I'm I'm just speculating. No, I, I'm 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 logged in. Oh, real? Okay, yeah. then I don't have an excuse there. I don't know what's going on there. So they have the Macross movies. They have Macross 2 and Macross Plus. Um, or no, I'm sorry. Macross Plus is the actual TV series. But, yeah. I think I watched a little bit of that. Yeah, Macross is an interesting... It's it's almost in a weird way like, like Harvest Moon to me, where there's a lot of different options, but you don't always know like what you're going to get when you pick one. <laughs> so... <laughs> Let's see. Um, I'm just taking a look at my list here. We did we did some Wall Street Journal stuff. We discussed some of the Kickstarter stuff. Uh, we got over my, Mighty Number no. Nine. Before we get off the Kickstarter stuff, I'll do a quick shout out on Yuka uh, Laylee, successor to Banjo Kazooie, uh, done by a lot of the former Rare members. Funded in one under uh, in under one hour. If I can get the marbles out of my mouth, also becoming the most successful. And funded Kickstarter video game from the UK. I don't care. Oh, I don't care at nice. all. No, no, not, not not to you. I just. Oh no, I know. I was. Teasing. I don't care about Banjo Kazooie. I don't care about Rare. I don't care about those kind of games. I just don't care. I don't know. Like I, I Rare for me is one of those kind of companies where. You don't understand whenever you hear people talking about it. I don't understand why people liked their games. I don't get it. So some of their stuff I liked. I won't open that can of worms right now, and I don't. I don't feel disrespectful by that. I, I know a lot of people that love Banjo Kazooie, but I'll say this: I never owned Banjo Kazooie. I think I only played it once or twice. So you're not uh, stepping on my toes, so to speak. 
But I know a lot of people loved it. Uh, how about this? I, I bet I can maybe cheer you up with this one. What are your thoughts on the misadventures of Tron Bond getting a re-release on PlayStation One Classic? I was, I was, um, I will get to that in just a minute. But I have to tell you because I found, and I want anybody who has Hulu Plus. <laughs> This is the best comment in the world, too, on this thing. Um, I don't know if you have to have, like, a subscription or not, so you you might need it, so I'm going to warn you that. But uh, if you do have a Hulu Plus subscription, um, the Revolutionary Girl Utena movie is not only on here, but is on here both dubbed and subbed either way. Should I see that? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I would love for you to see it. Because I I know the text message you're gonna send me as soon as you've done you're done watching it, so you know I think you should I I think I think you should watch it. The revolutionary girl Utena. Yes, it's and okay. it's called Adolescence of Utena. Is the is the movie? Sounds like it's an hour and twenty five minutes. A doozy. Um, I want you to watch it because right. I want to get your reaction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm. I'm open to it. This is one of my all-time favorite anime movies. Mm. It. It is an acquired taste. <laughs> like so. Um, if you don't like it, I will understand. I will not be offended because it's. It's a little bit different. I didn't mind. Uh Project Echo. Yeah, it's not Project Echo. <laughs> wow. It's not. Hey, you ready for this? But uh, I got to throw this out there. Uh, recently, there was free comic book day. Uh, but I don't know, about 10 days ago, I went to all the major shops in Portland with a buddy. Long, long story short, one of the sh- shops we found, it's kind of a real underground indie style comic shop. And there's a girl that works there, and she seems to kind of know her stuff, and and she's into uh, we. My buddy and I cannot believe some of the stuff that she's into because it it it, it's, it blows our mind because she's into a lot of the stuff that we are. Uh, my buddy and I, mm-hmm. even from a wrestling perspective and all that. But that's that's a topic for some other time. Do you know what uh, T-shirt she had on when <laughs> I saw her last time? What Project Echo? Really? I said to her, I said, uh, hey. I said, what the hell are you doing with a Project Echo shirt? <laughs> I said, really? She goes, oh, yeah. She goes, I got this, I don't know, a while ago when I was down in L.A. on a visit. She's like, I saw it at a place for five bucks. And she's like, I had to have it. Yeah, can you believe that? Wow. But the thing is, is that I can't figure out, like, I pegged her as being, like, 21 or 24 mm-hmm. and look with today with the internet and all that you know that doesn't really matter anymore you can go back and watch anything in an instant but i was saying to myself how the hell do you know some of this stuff right because yeah. you're, too, you're too young yeah so i don't know so I, I had to throw that out there i saw someone with an echo shirt that's that's awesome yeah okay so i'm gonna get to your the, the tron bomb okay I'm sorry, I have to go back to Hulu again in just a second. Yep. So yep. first of all, anybody who is, is listening, if if you do watch Utena, the movie, um, like tweet at me. You can send us an email too, but let me know because I want to know your reaction if you've never seen it. Uh, I want to know your reaction if you guys out there do watch it. And if you have seen it before, then I want to know what you think of it. Um, but also, like, this is so crazy. Like, Because um, now they also have Dirty Pear on there. 
So if, any, mm. if anybody has no idea what Dirty Pair is, and if you're curious, uh, I hate this, though. I hate this so much. Okay. So it says, it's on here, but you can only watch it on your computer. It says, we currently don't have the rights to make this show available on your TV or mobile devices. Ooh, really? I, so I hate Hulu. I don't know. I mean, like, I subscribed to it for certain things, but I hate this Hulu thing because, like, you get, like, commercials, right? You get commercials for a service you're paying for when you're watching shows, but then there's also, like, a lot of stuff that you can only watch on your computer and not watch. Yes. Yeah, it's <sighs> almost like the people paying the eight bucks kind of get cheated yeah, a little it's, bit. Yeah, it's so, it's, it's, I agree. it's so dumb. Um, okay, so anyway, Tron Bond. So I was ecstatic about that because that's been one of the PS1 games that I've wanted, like, forever. It was one of those games where I always meant to just go buy it, and I never did. And then it got to the point where it was impossible to, to get. I mean... I was looking and like copies were still going for, you know, two hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars right. on eBay, depending on if they were still shrink wrapped or not. Right. So I am so happy because I mean, for a long time there's been concern that the Mega Man Legends games couldn't come out at all. And I don't know that the the Mega Man Legends one and two still can, but the fact that Louise got Tron Bond makes me so happy because I, I have wanted to play that. If you thought Macross and Robotech was convoluted. I read a long post on the Mega Man Legends 3 Facebook page, which celebrated over 100,000 likes like last year. They still update and follow a lot of that stuff. And I read a whole thing, the back and forth on the the theories, or they had a link to an article on Mega Man Legends 1 and 2 and the possibilities and stuff, and that's kind of... There is a wide array of things in there. Everything yeah. from like voice actors to have you seen it? Oh, I I mean I know like one of the voice actors did some not so nice. There was that and... I, I I would not have known what the heck you were talking about if I didn't just yeah. read it a few days ago. I don't even like talking about that topic, but you're right. It's the one of the worst things ever in life that someone can do. And that voice actor went on and did that according to that article I read. But there were numerous other things in there as well. But I'm with you like that. I guess it kind of gives hope, you would think. You know, and then someone was like, well, maybe if they took the the PlayStation Portable versions that never came here, the re-release or something, and that would be like an indirect way or... Yeah, cause I, mean, I, I know there were concerns um, with even like the, just like the, the voice acting alone in, in Tron Bond. They weren't sure if they had the rights to it or something like that. Right, and I guess with the mainline Mega Man Legends games, um, and Japan's kind of bad about this, and I, I think overall companies need to get better. Just period, is Japanese developers will oftentimes put things in the game that kind of are legally ambiguous, you know, <laughs> like oh, that's right, because of the sponsored the, uh, yeah, the drink or whatever sponsored stuff, or or like um, just symbols that look very similar to real life stuff or logos or things like or company names and things like that and so then later on that can become a problem especially bringing it to the west so there's multiple like you're saying there's multiple issues with the Mega Man Legends games and as to why they couldn't come out and that's people thought the same was about Tron Bond but it seems like something got worked out about it so right what do you think of the game I played it for maybe a half hour so far I just I got it more for obscurity's sake and I knew it was rare and I'd never played it. What? What do? What do you? No, think? I haven't actually actually picked it up yet. I mean, I'm going to because um, 
I have a problem logging in to PSN, and so I I need to well, I need to go also go back and get a, a new point card so I can buy stuff. But oh, okay, yeah, because I need to pick up that, and then I missed ugh, I missed getting Sukaden two for the sale price, which makes me mad. But what did that drop to? <clears throat> I think it's like because I think Konami's doing it for ten bucks normally, like Square does for their PS one right. games, right. and then in that big um, Golden Week sale recently, I think it was five dollars. Wow. Damn. Yeah, and I should have picked it up then, but I didn't. So there, there's a few things I need to like catch up on. Mm. I'm trying to think here. Let me let me do this before we we are right now at about 90 minutes, believe it or not, and that's with time lost. I will I will do one more little piece, and then I'll let you uh, do a final sound, whatever you'd like. Does that sound fair? Sure. So I'm going to read, uh, I, I guess I love reading. This is not from the Wall Street Journal. So this is from the current issue of Edge on American Shores, specifically issue number 279, May 2015, with Splatoon on the cover. Now part of the reason I'm going to read what I'm going to read is because, one, Shidoshi is still uh, in, you know, heavily active in the industry you know, has a great role at egmnow.com, does reviews, does the shows, etc., etc. And we're always looking for new angles and ideas, uh, you know, in an industry flooded with sites and, and, and what have you. You know, everyone trying to get the jump on one another. Now, what I'm about to read isn't like some genius thing that's really never been done before, but I still found this interesting, and it actually relates to Bloodborne. Now, I'm probably not going to delve into the Bloodborne topic as much as I would like to tonight, but on GVGP, maybe number 10, I'd like to share a little bit more feelings on the game itself from my perspective. Okay. Now, I'm going to actually read you a letter from a fan. This is to Edge Magazine. Okay. It's from someone named Jason West, and I'm assuming they live in the UK. And it says, No Score Draw is the title of the letter. So, you finally went ahead and did it. I never thought I'd see the day where Edge ran a review without a score. And didn't even print it on another page later in the magazine. I'm intrigued as to why you decided not to put a number on the end of the text. Given the number of gaming websites who have happily slapped a score on Bloodborne after what appears to be a similar amount of time with the game. Was it part of the deal with Sony that got you such early access to the finished product? Were you perhaps mindful of the fact that you only gave Dark Souls a 9, only to later return with the benefit of hindsight and award it the score deserved? Or did you just not feel that 40 hours was enough? Either way, it was an interesting experiment and one I'd like to see repeated for big event releases like this where you don't feel like you've quite had the time you need equally where would you draw the line games evolve for months after launch these days and they're often as good as unrecognizable from their original forms a year or two down the line if you don't put a score on a game at launch when do you whatever you decide I hope you make it the exception rather than the rule. While the feature straddled that awkward line between preview and review, I was surprised how much I missed the number at the end of the text. 
It seems like the game's media is gradually moving away from scores, but I'm not quite ready for Edge to follow in kind just yet. And I hope you aren't either. Now, I'll explain a little bit more on this before I read the response. Now, keep this in mind. In issue 278 of Edge, where Bloodborne was on the cover, titled The Verdict, and I'm so embarrassed, I get so much stuff, I have to check and see if I have that issue. I don't get Edge every month. What the letter is alluding to is that in that issue of Edge, they did like a, quote, review, it seems, Mm -hmm. but they didn't score that one. And in this issue I have in my hand, if you want to call it a second review, it's not because they regretted their first review. They did another review this time, but whereas the game was more complete, I think online elements, things of that nature, and now they scored it. Hmm. And I'll get to that score in a second, but first off, I'll read you their response, which is short. Thanks to everybody who sent in feedback on this. Okay, not everybody. Because some of you were a bit weird about it. But the experiment has taught us much. Scores are here to stay. At least for now. So, with that being said, is not to leave people hanging. For those who are curious as to what Edge scored Bloodborne, and as we know, Edge is a bit... uh, They're tough. Yes. They don't give many tens. Yeah. I dare say Bayonetta getting two of those. I always love to brag about Bloodborne got a 10. Hmm. So, now, I probably won't dissect that review. I'm not going to get into that as much tonight uh, as it's getting late. But uh, I do have my opinions on Bloodborne. I'll allude to some of those right now and get more in later. I want to get some more time with the game. Uh... And just to be clear, I have not played it at all yet. Because I, I uh, then I won't, I, I won't spoil much. I think yeah. you'll know more than me about it, even though you haven't played Bloodborne oh, yeah. because you're a uh, a long time diehard Dark uh, Dark Souls fan and yeah. Demon Souls. But but yeah, I just want to be clear. My my situation was um, was twofold. It was one that I just didn't have time to play yet, and that's kind of the game I wanted to sit down and actually be able to really invest myself in. And then also, once I started hearing about the issues with the um, load times, I and it was starting to look like there was going to be a patch for that. I just decided to wait until the patch. So right. And by the way, they did, they did put a big patch out recently. Yeah. And so I kind of have like two, if not three, angles. One piece of me with Bloodborne having only scratched the surface, and it's not even that. From a hardcore gamer perspective, uh, from an enthusiast perspective, from a longtime gamer's perspective, from a perspective of someone who's played some some tough as nails games over the years, from the eight bit era, you know, uh, all the way up through the the best of the best, I can completely understand as to why Bloodborne is praised by its community and. I am happy for the success it has, and I totally respect that because many games today hold your hand too much. Mm-hmm. And when games where you've got maps that give you straight lines from point <laughs> A to point B, overwhelming firepower, regenerative abilities, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think that's all well-deserved praise on Bloodborne. 
Now, the reason I should probably keep my mouth shut at this point is because I have not completed Bloodborne, nor have I mastered it to any extent. So this is where I may be uh, biting myself in the, in the ass. Simultaneously, another piece of me feels from, from a... Uh, what's the word? Like a mass appeal perspective. And and when I say this, I need to clear clarify. I'm not talking like Call of Duty or Halo, and I'm not trying to pick on those games. Like, in, in terms of getting people to take notice of this game, or new gamers, or um, it's it's in terms of its mass appeal and how a great game is structured, like, let's say, Mario Brothers. Or like Mario Kart. And I know I'm naming a lot of Nintendo games. From the perspective of that. In terms of. Pick up and play. Easy to get into. Hard to master. I mean. If I'm being honest on this show. And I have to form my own opinion. And and stand on my own two feet. From that perspective, I would have to say Bloodborne fails. Like, and 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 don't misconstrue that. That doesn't that doesn't mean take your copy, bring it back, and I'm saying don't buy Bloodborne. I'm looking at it from different angles. Like from the perspective of like, it would be it, it's a very tough sell to the average consumer I think which also surprises me in that Bloodborne has seen much success quickly moving selling over a million copies which is fantastic. Yeah. The only other thing I can say to that to that the <clears throat> is some of the game is very old school in a sense and I don't know why but it reminds me of some old PC titles that were very unforgiving like the days of just it's not like Shadow of the Beast, but I'm just trying to think of stuff that's like, until you remember everything or really master how that game works, you're going to die, die, die. And in one respect, it's like, hey, I grew up with that. And you and I have had conversations like this in the past about other games. Like, we get it because we live through it and we're used to it. And that's what we remember. So we know how to roll with those punches. But the other argument we've had is, well, if that's the case, like, are we judging games today? Like there's certain elements where it's like, well, we did, they did those tricks back in the day to extend time or to, to mask certain shortcomings of hardware until they could rectify that in time as we've seen games evolve for better or worse. So I, I definitely got to play Bloodborne more. There is a lot that I like about it. The, the only little thing I'm saying to people out there, if you're not all hardcore and you don't know what you're getting into, you've really got to sit down, put some time into this game, learn how it works. Don't, you know, don't get easily frustrated and, you know, kind of, you know, you got to think outside the box. Uh, maybe not even be afraid to check some message boards if you're not familiar with how a game like this works. So I, I know that you do follow some wrestling. Um, have have you ever heard of this federation called ECW? Yes. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so did you, did you ever watch them when they were on TNN? Oh, come on. This can't. I mean, I, I, I watched them when uh, via satellite on DirecTV in the mid-90s before they got to TNN. No, no, but I'm, I'm asking you. Oh, of course, you of course. Okay, so you of, watched on, on TNN. Of course. What did you think when they went on TNN? Mm, it wasn't quite the same, but that wasn't all because it was on TNN. There were a lot of factors if I'm being a wrestling nerd, but to answer your question in short, it wasn't quite the same in some ways. Because, I mean, you have to admit that some parts of it were because of the chance to get to a bigger audience. They had to tone down some things. Oh, sure. Some things. Uh, yeah, I'm going to make I'm going to put some stuff aside, turn a blind eye to it for this conversation. But I'm just going to say yes. Yeah. So that's coming. That's, that's kind of like I guess where I'm going to into it is that's kind of a problem. I think these kinds of things run into, you know, if, um, you know, Demon's Souls was a very hardcore kind of game meant for a very specific audience with, I'm sure, some very limited expectations for how it would do. Right. Uh, but then you get to the point where it does way more than, way more sales-wise than what you're expecting it to do. And because of that, you're starting to get people coming in who weren't necessarily the target audience. Um, but they've heard about this weird, crazy game called Demon Souls, and they want to try it for themselves. And they come to you, and they're like, "Well, I could get into this, but the problem is, it is a little bit too hardcore for me." And then from software, at the point has to decide: Do we keep this as a game that is only targeted to our audience, or do we try to expand the scope and accessibility of the game while also making sure? The people who did love it in the first place for certain things mm. are going to still find those things in the game, right? So I, I think that's a problem that you. Anytime you have things like a Demon Souls or an ECW or whatever, when they have this really cult following, that and they're loved for a certain reason of of doing things kind of beyond what might necessarily be mass marketable or you know all consumer friendly. And trying to figure out how you transition that into something that you can make bigger, not just because you're trying to chase a bigger audience, but because you're seeing that bigger audience come to you. You know, so I think it's, it's I think it's a tough situation, and I think I think um, you know I said I have not played Bloodborne yet, so I cannot comment on that. I can say that in some ways, I definitely did think that Dark Souls Two. Uh, dumbed itself down in 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 said in ways that I was not a fan of and I've heard from like online or from different areas I don't have a source right now but I even want to say I've heard at least a couple people feel that Bloodborne was more forgiving I think than Dark Souls 1 and 2 and I the one thing that I've heard again not having played it is that it is very, very generous with like the healing items when that's not necessarily something that's been part of the series. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a crybaby because, uh, you know, I pride myself as being a decent gamer and like, look, this is just me messing around with it here and there. Mm -hmm. But I feel like... I just feel like you can get someone coming out of nowhere in that game and boom, bang, you're done. 
Yeah, which I mean, like, which know, is supposed to, which, uh, which, the game's supposed uh, to be. Yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out why I have the, these feelings, though, because I've, you know, I like shooters and I played games that are very unforgiving, but I don't know why it's different with me with, with Bloodborne. Like, maybe it's because I don't expect that from the look or the style. Like, I don't know. You're, you've, you've become soft, Anthony. No, but, you know. You're soft. But, you know, I've even tested myself on some on certain things in recent years, and I've still gone through some, you know, real tough stuff. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's so much that or just I think part of it is because of how people talked about it or like what. And I, I think that affected what I was thinking going in. And I'm not complaining. I like I don't want to get rid of the game or I don't, you know, it's not what I'm saying, but I'm just. I'm shocked it's accepted as much as it has been. But I mean, like, I'm I'm not because it is the alternative. You know, it's 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 for the people who are like, yeah, I do love this WWE, but sometimes I do want things a little bit crazier. You know, right? Someone watching and, and, and me of all people, I I think that's awesome. I, I think I think this. I think that you know. I think to some level, even if people don't want to admit it, they do miss games that give them a challenge you know and you know what i would be really curious to know is because we all all these conversation about how many people um don't finish games right Mm -hmm. that like at a certain point you're looking at 25 percent 15 percent 10 percent of players who actually finish a game wow you know i wonder what the percentage is for for games like bloodborne or dark souls right because part of me almost wants to think that like it might be higher than the norm because you you have a game that is so challenging that people then make it their mission to want to beat it, right? Versus another game where it's just like you know what this is kind of I'm just like walking through this game so you know maybe I I you know if it doesn't like grab me then I'm not going to come back to it I'm not going to not going to fully complete it, mm. like. I, I think maybe I wonder if Bayonetta is the same kind of situation where, you know, more people may be beaten that than the norm because of the kind of game that really pushes you to get better and pushes you to want to see it through to the end. Yeah, see, and I'm so sorry you brought that up because I don't want to open that can of worms. We we talked about it last time, but like, you know, that's another thing. Talking about the original Bayonetta, which I did, come, I've gone through that game a couple times. I know you're gonna you're gonna punch me through the <laughs> through the microphone. That's another example coming down to where an action game like Bayonetta, you get so spoiled by the control. And oh, what, let me make don't, this. Cl- don't even don't even but, start uh, talking about Bloodborne's uh, controls. Uh, 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 I know. Now let me let me clarify. Let's clarify. Let's clarify. The controls in Bloodborne, the actual maneuvering and moving around stuff, absolutely fine. But then I, I may be now getting into the complications of your sub menu. Like do, when you hit options, you hit the touchpad and all your options from there. And I'm not knocking it, but I'm just saying like you've got so many more things to do or create or to manage versus something like Bayonetta where most everything is on the fly. Sure. That's that's what I mean. Sure. But, you know, I mean, like, here's the thing. Like, like it is it is old school, you know, and I, I appreciate that. Like, I remember I remember playing 2,600 games where you had no idea what you were doing in the first place, you know? <laughs> like, you didn't know what anything right. was. 
so I, I kind of like, and I know people bitch about that. Cause I, one thing I hear all the time is the fact that it doesn't tell you, for example, um, like weapon upgrades, right? It doesn't explain to you how weapon upgrades work and what you're going to get if you upgrade certain things. But, you know, I kind of like that. I kind of miss, I kind of miss games where it's like, I don't know everything and I have to just try stuff. And maybe when I try a workout, maybe it won't, you know, like I, I kind of appreciate that. Right. So. Hmm. Well, very interesting nonetheless. And uh, like I said, I, I do plan to sink my teeth into Bloodborne a bit more. And uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be taking a look at some message boards. And I did pick up that strat guide I discussed the last episode, which is like bigger than a Bible. <laughs> so I'm sure it's got to have something halfway decent in there. So cool. Yeah, well, I guess before we uh, peel out of here, want to thank uh, listeners for hanging in there with us, checking out radio.morningproject.com. Uh, we always enjoy and love getting fan mail, which can be sent to gvgp at morningproject.com. And, I, and we'll check next time to check our emails we've gotten in. Because of the screw-up tonight, we had to kind of do a longer than we were planning on doing. So, um, yeah, I'll check that next time. And like I said, I want people to watch Utena, including, <laughs> including you. And so I want to I want to hear feedback on what people thought of that show. Just, um, just I guess I will say warning about who you watch it with. It might be a kind of you want to watch it by yourself for the first time, mm. just in case, because it's, it's a little bit of a bizarre... <laughs> Ooh, I'm I'm really interested <laughs> now. Love the bizarre show. Oh. So all right, you you sold me. Yes. So uh, and and you can send your tweets to myself at twenty four bit aje. That's with the number two, the number four, and you can find Shidoshi at Molly Pen. That's M O L L I E P E N. Now you, so, you screwed it up. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm. I am serious. M O L L I P E N. Only one E. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's no way. I, I know. I'm questioning the person that created the feed. I know. There's, How can that? There's only one E, and it's oh, it's the last. Oh e. my god. Yes. Well, correction. That's twenty-four bit AJE. The number <laughs> two. The number four BIT AJE. And Shidoshi at Molly Pen. That's M O L L I P E N. There you go. Wow, I cannot. That's that's what. And there, there's a, there's a very deep meaning behind that nick that new nickname I'm using on Twitter and whatnot. So I can explain that one day. I mean, beyond beyond what you're expecting, there is a there is a deeper connection. Well, that'll be and for those who check out the feed, they probably get some uh, information on that, and I think that's something we can certainly discuss. Uh, in the future, no problem. Um, I, I'm worried right now about my eyeballs. <laughs> that for days I could have bet the, the farm that there was an extra letter in there. Nope. But so thank you everyone again. And also, uh, if you go to radio.morningproject.com, there's also a new nichiest up which I have yet to hear. And uh, this GVGP will be coming to you live via tape delay in the coming days. We'll have more in the future on E3, hopefully some special guests, and a little bit of everything else in due time. And with that, 
Adios. Bye.